All right, you want to find your seats? You want to make a start? For those of you who um, weren't around last week or aren't around regularly, just so you know, we're starting a new series in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament. And um, I, did a, I did a brief Old Testament history overview for you last week, just so you get the picture. It would be unhelpful to do that every week. It would just take too long. Um, but it's there on the website as part, of old, as part of last week's sermon, if you want to access that. Um, all of the sermons are available on podcast now, so it's easier to, to, to access them. But I will just give you a very, very brief, a few things worth knowing. Number one, answering the question, who? No one knows who Malachi was, the reason being that the name Malachi means messenger. So it could have been anyone. It could have been a guy called Malachi, but it could have been, some people say it was the scribe Ezra. A lot of people say we don't know, okay, so there's no way of finding out anything about the man himself. When? Any time between 490 BC and 425 BC, that's disputed. But it was sometime between 490 and 425 years before Jesus Christ came. That's when this book was written. Where? In Jerusalem. It was speaking to the Jews who had come back out of exile from Babylon. They'd been in Babylon 70 years in exile under God's judgment. God had brought them back to Jerusalem where the temple had been rebuilt, though nowhere near as glorious as it was before, and where under Nehemiah's leadership the walls were rebuilt. Okay, the zip, the zip, the zip, the zip. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what? Don't, don't, let's just stay on track. It's really, the whole idea with, with, with the book of Malachi is that it's God's covenant people that are breaking the covenant left, right and centre, and God speaks right into it. Because that's the thing about God, you see. He doesn't fudge issues, he doesn't move around things and just kind of... You know, he's not, he's not English. And if you're English in the room, you understand what I'm saying. We don't realise what we're like until someone who's perhaps not from England comes in and observes. I remember hearing an American preacher recently, and he just made this comment. He said this, he said, you know what, over here, candor doesn't exactly grow on trees. And uh, you know what, candor means um, brutal honesty, saying things as they really are. It doesn't really grow on trees. It's not part of the English culture to really say things as they are. We will just go around a bit, or we'll avoid confrontation at all costs. Um, that's a part of our culture that is not godly because it means very often when someone offends us or grieves us, instead of speaking to them about it, we speak to other people about it. Or we speak to no one about it where the Bible says speak the truth to one another in love. And so as, for those of you here that are English, there's something in our culture to overcome there in order to be more like the kingdom of God. Because what God does is that he speaks the truth to us in love. And sometimes he speaks it with, a, with quite a point. Today, it's potentially a controversial and an offensive sermon. So just to warn you before we get going, but I guess it will make sure you listen at least. But anyway, it's very strong. And um, we're gonna, I, I want to just be true to what the thing actually says rather than you know, just go around the sides of it. And so really what's happening here is God is addressing his people that are dishonoring him and aren't living true to the covenant that they're in with him. So that's really uh, a, a rough background of the book of Malachi. And so what we're going to read, first of all, we're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. I'll make some comments, and then we'll go from chapter 10, verse 10 after that, which is the, really the meat of the sermon. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honour to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. 
Behold, I will rebuke your offspring or your seed and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you've turned aside from the way. You've caused my people, so you've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but you show partiality in your instruction. So straight away it's strong. God is charging the, peace, the priests primarily here with not doing what they're supposed to do. They had two main functions. Number one, they would present the offerings in the temple. Number two, they would instruct the people. Now last week we looked at how they took the offerings and what they would do where the instructions were, you present a lamb that is without blemish or a, a, a male that is without blemish. No blind, no broken limbs or anything like that. Why? Because the offering represents and speaks of the offering of Christ. The, the one without blemish, the spotless one. And so as soon as you start to offer something with a blemish, you're, you're not really offering anything that will satisfy God because what satisfies God ultimately is not the offering of any lamb, bull or goat, but the offering of Jesus. And so anything that's offered that's blemished does not, if in, in that sense, remind God of Christ and so it brings no forgiveness. And so they get charged with that. We looked at that last week. This week it's instruction. He says also, he said, not only this, he said, your, your role is to instruct the people. They come to you and they say things like, what's God saying? And they look to you for wisdom, they look to you to open up the scriptures, they look to you to just help them live a godly life. And really, you've turned them away. Because in your heart, you've gone cold, because you've compromised. You're turning people away from me. You're causing people to stumble. They're coming to you for advice, and you're saying, yeah, yeah, God's fine with that when he isn't. Or they're saying, no, God doesn't like that when he does. And so the people, well, the priest said it, you know. How many Christians I've spoken to have done crazy things? You say, what happened? And they said, well, my pastor said and it's, tra- it's heartbreaking because you say, how could a pastor say that? And it's, it's horrific because they thought, well, the pastor said, and, you know, surely he's a godly leader, and, well, I just did it, and now their life's just, you know, just a mess. You think, oh, my goodness, what is this? This is what's happening there. The, those who are supposed to give instruction, they're not really giving anything that truly reflects God's heart. They're speaking in the name of God, but it's not God's, it's not God's way. And the other thing that, that, that he says, he says, you, you're partial, right? So someone comes to you, and you give them that advice, Someone else comes to you and you give them different advice. Why? Who knows? Maybe this one was poor, this one was rich. And so you treated them differently. Maybe this one didn't look too good and this one you found attractive. Maybe you felt intimidated by that person, but not by that person. So the person you didn't feel intimidated by, you told them this is how it is. And then someone comes along and you're thinking, how are they going to react if I tell them this is what God really says? So they tone it down. And God says, this is a stench in my nostrils. You're representing me as if I'm partial. Whenever you give partial instruction, you're saying God is partial because you're speaking on my behalf. And it's a real challenge. It's a challenge to me for the obvious reason. I stand up here most weeks and give instruction. James 3 verse 1 says something very sober. It says, not many of you should aspire to be teachers because you'll receive a stricter, stricter judgment. So, this is very sober, very sobering. Here's what one of the um, theologians says. Priests living unworthy lives 
were encouraging unworthy worship by God's people through unworthy and erroneous teaching. God forbid that I should ever be partial with you. I should tell you one thing because I'm afraid of how you'd react. If I told them the truth, they'd, they'd explode. I'd better just keep it easy. God forbid. It'd be terrible if I did that. Bad teaching leads to bad lives. You've got to understand that. People live out of what they believe. Even if it's not conscious, you live and act and speak out of fundamentally what you, what you hold to be true. So it's vital that you know what you hold to be true is right and is really what God is saying. But there's another element of it which is quite sobering in the sense that in the New Covenant we're all priests. <laughs> it's the priesthood of all believers, you see. So in that sense, people should be able to come to you for advice. And if you don't know, what should you say? I don't know. <laughs> Whatever you do, what you do know, just bring it. Bring it in love, bring it graciously, but bring it truthfully. It's so important. Otherwise, your conscience will be troubled for years afterwards. If it's just someone acts on what you say and really you just bluffed it, or you just spoke out of being intimidated by them, or you didn't want to upset them, what have I done? And you can live with it, the regret of that for a long time. So I want to urge you, as fellow priests, <laughs> as fellow priests, let us, let us be true to what we know. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And sometimes there's a wound in that we bring in what we say. Not because we're vindictive or horrible, but because you want to be truthful. So this is how it is. Even if people find it hard. And what we're going to look at today, some of you, what I say, you will find very hard. But speak on behalf of God, so you need to be truthful. So that's just to give us a bit of a background. And God's saying, basically, you know what? There's, a, there's, there's this priestly blessing in number six. I'll just read this to you. And it's being turned on its head here. It's very, very sobering. So in number six, there's this Aaronic blessing. Aaron says this. It's beautiful. He says, the Lord bless you and keep you. What does it say in Malachi? I will curse your blessings. Then he says, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. I'll spread dung on your faces. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I'll make you despised and abased before all the people. It's a deliberate reversing of the ironic blessing from number six. God's saying, you know what, you are resting on presumption. You're just assuming that, you know, because you've got the temple and because, you know, naturally you're, you're the seed of Abraham, you're the Jews, you just think, it doesn't matter how we live. What the heck, man, we're the Jews, we do what we like. And God's saying, it's not like that. It's a covenant of a relationship. It's about what's going on in your heart. So what are the sins? Well, let's go on, shall we? Chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one father? And here it's important you understand all is referring to the Jews. It's not referring to a universal kind of thing. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off the tent, from the tent of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favour from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless. Because she's your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit 
And let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Now, in verse 16 it says this, For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her. And in the Hebrew it says, who hates and divorces her. And if you've got an NIV Bible, or an NRSV, I think, or an NKJV, or a KJV, it will say, God says, I hate divorce. Because something of the phrasing there, it's difficult to know the exact phrasing, but it could read, um, for the man who hates and divorces his wife, or it could read, God says, I hate divorce. It's very strong either way. Um, the God of Israel, he covers his garment with violence. If you divorce, hate and divorce your wife, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now what are the two things that are going on here? The first thing is this, is that they are marrying people of other religions. The second sin is this, is that they are divorcing easily. And I want to look at the subject of being yoked to uh, unbelievers today. And I want to look at the subject of divorce. So it's quite meaty. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be uh, <laughs> uh, interesting. So... As a pastor, you hit this one quite a lot. People say, well, look, you know, I've fallen in love. Not a believer, but they're sympathetic, you know. Not, not, not having lots of problems with this, you know. And you often find, you have to talk to Christians, uh, someone who's been a believer for a while and, um, you know, they meet someone and it's like, well, you know, they don't believe, but, you know, they're wanting to come to church. You know. You'd be fine, wouldn't it? Now, it is tricky. I mean, in the Bible, it refers to those who have become a Christian, but they're married already, so their partner's an unbeliever. What to do then? Well, the Bible says, no, don't leave them. Don't do that. If they're happy to be with you as a believer, stay with them, because you've got to guard marriage for the next point. Well, there are others who become Christians, and it's like they're, they're almost as good as married in that sense, you know? Courting for years, engaged or whatever, and it's like, oh, what do you do? It's not, on those things, you've got to walk it. But there's a general principle here, this, if you're a believer... To get together romantically with someone who's not a believer, is that okay? And there's disagreement in the church. And I want to look at what the Bible teaches and help us to unpack that today. Okay? So we'll look at Numbers 25, which is an interesting story. I'll take you through some narratives just so you can get sort of God's heart on it, really, and why it's a big deal. Numbers 25. Forgive the name of the location of the place where the Israelites were. Numbers 25, verse 1. While Israel lived in Shittim... I, I tried to pronounce it a different way, but with integrity I couldn't. You know, that's what it says. Um, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These, in, these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. That's, one, that's a different god. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand, went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy. Okay. <laughs> what does this teach us? It doesn't teach us that we are to use spears in church discipline or anything like that. What it teaches us is, is two things. In this situation, we're going to build an argument, but in this situation at least, 
The, the coming together, the marrying of the sons of Israel with the daughters of Moab, led to a joining together of the religions. That's what it led to. And as such, those two things profaned the covenant God's people had with God, and there was a judgment that came. It was a very fierce judgment, just to give you a sense of how it made God feel. Um, 24,000 were killed as a result of that, and only that act of um, vengeance by Phineas was able to stop the plague. So, okay. Then if we go to 1 Kings 11, we get to the story of Solomon, who started off well and became a bit of a player. And then we see what happened as a result of that. 1 Kings 11, verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 porcupines. Concubines, it's a joke. <laughs> no one, they wouldn't even laugh. I thought, come on, guys. And his, wi- listen, and his wives turned away his heart. His wives turned away his heart. Now, at this point, some of you ladies could be thinking, oh, this always seems to be the wives that are the baddies. Why is this? Here's why. It's not saying that at all. Here's why. In those days, the guy would go and get the girl. A woman wouldn't go and seek a husband. A husband would go and seek a wife, you see. So the instruction to the Jewish women never was, don't go and, don't go and get married to someone who you know, doesn't believe in the Lord, because they wouldn't be doing that. They would be sought out, and then would be married. You see, the instruction was to the men. So that's why it's phrased in this way. Anyway, nevertheless, it says this. Um, his wives turned away his heart. God has said, don't, don't marry them because they'll turn away your heart. So we get this situation happening here. Um, and then we've got a very interesting one in Nehemiah. If you go to Nehemiah, just trying to just show you, it's not a one-off. Nehemiah 13, this is, I mean, do you want me to be this kind of a pastor? Nehemiah 13, verse 23. In those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I, and I made them take oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for, yourselves, or for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin." Shall we then listen to you and do all, that, do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Now, what's going on here? Here's what's going on. God is saying this. You are my covenant people. If you marry those who are covenanted to another God, then you are joining the Lord with their God. You're jo- so you're defiling God. It's very, very serious. But then I guess many of us would take a step back and say, yeah, but hold on a second. What if they don't, they're not of another religion, okay, but they're just agnostic or atheists or whatever. Surely, does that, how does that work? Here's how it works. As far as God is concerned, there are no atheists. As far as God is concerned, there are no agnostics. As far as God is concerned, there's a planet full of worshippers. Everybody worships something. The issue is not, what religion are you? The issue is this, do you worship the creator or do you worship the created? That's the issue. The Bible is clear. Every other God is a God made up of the, by, by the human imagination. So there is no Allah. Okay? There is no Allah. There is no um, 
all these Hindu gods, no, they're not. They are, the, they are the forming from people's imaginations, and then yes, demonic powers do get behind them, but ultimately they are the forming of human imagination. So you either worship the creator or the created, whether that's yourself, your partner, a celebrity, a sport, a god that you've created. Maybe that you've inherited it, you've just brought up in it, but it's still a god of the imagination. And so the issue is that for a believer to be a believer and be covenanted with the Lord, and then as a single person, and then say, I'm now going to start a relationship with someone who worships the created. You're, you're, you're profaning the covenant that God has brought you into. And it's all the way through Scripture. So what about the New Testament? Does it carry on? Well, yeah, if we go to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 39, just to show you. I know it's just sober stuff, guys, but I mean, maybe some Q&A, but if I don't instruct you on this stuff, then, you know, I might get dung on my face. I don't want dung on my face. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Okay? So this, this helps us with the crazy charismatics who are always waiting for Mr. and Mrs. Right. No. You're free to marry whoever you wish. Okay? Only in the Lord. Make sure they really love the Lord. And it's going to work. Use your noddle as well. Is, is, is there some sense of compatibility here? You know, do we get on? <laughs> you know. But theologically, what's the issue? Theologically, the issue is in the Lord. That's, that's the only thing. And then you're all very famous with the 2 Corinthians 6. If you've been a Christian a little while, you probably would have heard this. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Right, so there's a yoke, the issue there is yoking, the same term used in the Old Testament. It's like you're joined together and you're trying to go this way. I want to follow the Lord. This person's either saying no and willfully resisting or just being kind of dragged along after you and it makes it hard work. God is zealous about this. You say, why? why? What is God? Why is it that it matters so much to God? What's God after? Here's what God's after. He, says, he tells us in Malachi, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And this is, again, what I'm going to say now is pretty counterculture as well. So, but the Bible's like that um, from time to time. Verse 14 of Malachi 2. Um, sorry, verse 15. Talking about marriage. Did he not make them one? with a portion of, their spirit, of, of the spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. See, see what it is? When, when a couple gets married, God gets really excited. Why? Because he's thinking, there's going to be some godly kids. This is amazing. God is eagerly anticipating the offspring that are brought up in a home where the mum and the dad are instructing them in the Lord. Let me just say this to you. Because we've got we to just be upfront about this. It is not cool, trendy or clever to bring your children up into the confusion of pluralism. Right? If you're a Christian and you bring your kids up with, well, just, here's the options, believe what you like. So what are we saying? We're saying that kids have discernment. We're saying kids have a moral framework to make that kind of decision. It's crazy. That's like laying out Postman Pat or that, you know, Halloween 6 or Saw. Which, watch which one you like. Which one do you fancy? Okay, there's numbers of films and whichever, you know, you find. What kind of shepherding is that? Where's the wisdom in that? The Bible is clear. 
particularly for dads as well, actually. There's a particular thing for dads, you know, and obviously where there's a single parent situation and it's just the mum, then, you know, good guys, grandparents or men in the church can be there to support. But fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the Lord. Bring them up. Now, some of you might think, why are you going on about this? I'm not even married. No, but most of you probably will be one day. Most people who are Christians at some point marry. Not all, and we absolutely honour singleness. It's not a second best by any means scripturally. No way, we honour singleness. If you're going to get married, do it well. (laughs) So you need to learn how to do it well. So you need to bring up your children in the Lord. And God's looking on saying, yeah, come on, Father. Father, you instruct them in the Lord. Mothers, you nurture them in the Lord. Godly offspring. That's what he's after. That's what he wants, you see. That, and in many ways, again, I would just say this, you know, what's marriage about biblically? Companionship and offspring. That's what it's about. Those are the two things biblically. So, there we go. There you have it. Um, that's my instruction. Will I still love you if you do your own thing? Yes. But I will say, you're a wally. You heard me preach the word to you here and you took it as if it was some kind of human advice. When it wasn't, it was the word of God. I will. And we'll keep loving you though. But I tell you, it's, it's, it, this is serious. It is serious. And if you just decide to do that, it won't be alright. Okay? It won't be alright. I want to say that to you. Because you, if you, you're convinced, you see the scriptures, and you make your own call in the light of that, it, will, it won't just be okay. It's a very different sermon from normal, I know this. If you're here as a guest, it's not normally like this, but it's one of those, this is the passage, so that's what I'm preaching. Trust him, won't you? Trust him for his provision for you. Don't do the thing where someone rocks up and they say they're a Christian and you know they're not. Everyone knows they're not. They know they're not. They said they are because they want to be with you. Don't convince yourself and try and convince others. Don't do it. It's hard work, isn't it? pushing down what you know to be true just saying this isn't happening I need someone who loves Jesus going to run with me I want to run with someone yeah, I want to run with someone and what was the other sin well the other sin was that they were just they was divorcing the wife of their youth they were trading them in for a new model basically what's happening get married to someone young and then they get a bit old it's like they're not quite as you know, attractive as you were and they'd, they'd divorce them put them away and they'd take a foreign woman who didn't love the Lord but she looked, she looked hot basically what happened yeah That's, that was their philosophy and God says I hate it when you do that you're being violent you're being, you're being violent it's a disgrace when I joined you with your wife I gave you some of my spirit you know God honours marriage you know when people get married whether they believe in God or not God gives the spirit to that union because he honours marriage what God has joined together, let no man separate. What God has joined together, let no man separate. We honour marriage massively, hugely. Because it's, it's more than just a covenant, it's a creation ordinance. It's huge. It's more than just a contract, more than just a covenant. Those elements are in there. It's a creation ordinance. It was like one of the first things that happened. They get joined together and go and multiply. Leave. Leave your mother and father and cleave, cling to your, to your wife. Become one. Physically, but work out a oneness of identity. You don't pull that apart. I'm going to give you a quote here. You may hate this quote. I think there's something in this quote worth reading. It is better to endure much personal unhappiness 
than to treat as expendable the solemn vows of the wedding service. I'll read that again because it's massively countercultural. It is better to endure much personal unhappiness than to treat as expendable the solemn vows of the wedding service. What is that saying? That's saying, what if your marriage isn't going too well? You stick at it. Divorce is not an option. You should have been around for the first how many years of our marriage? There were times I thought, this is embarrassing. I'm glad no one's watching. I mean, seriously. There was times I'm literally carrying Davina out of the flat. There's potatoes flying around the flat. I mean, it's just, it was tense. Seriously, it was. We have, we have had our moments. And there have been times where, to be honest with you, both of us sat and we thought, flip. What's the way through it? How is this thing going to work? Seasons where it seems like, we call them AM, FM seasons. It's on different wavelengths. You're like, what the? Everything I say, you're not getting, no way through. It's just incredibly hard. <laughs> incredibly, incredibly hard. But there's always been that thing in this bottom line that said, divorce isn't an option. It's just not an option. I remember preaching at a wedding once. You've probably heard this before, but I remember preaching at a wedding once and saying, marriage is hard work. And everyone just gives this really pity and looks over to Davina. Everyone goes... You know, and I thought, what is, why is that? I didn't think I said anything wrong there. And I realised what it is. People think hard work's bad. It's not bad. It's great if you build something good. But it takes work. You've got to roll your sleeves up and you've got to work things through. You can't just skate over issues or think, oh, we're not on the same page there. We'll believe that it'll work itself out. I tell you, it won't work itself out. It will bite you on the bum. It really will. It will come and get you. You've got to work things through. If you can't handle confrontation, you need help, get prayer, get advice so that you can, so that you can learn to confront well in your marriage. Work things through. Things don't just work themselves out. They have to be worked out by speaking the truth to one another in love, by listening quickly and speaking slowly. All these lessons that we all find so difficult. Because says, whatever you don't, don't just, don't just get to the point where, oh, it's not working anymore, and I'll get someone else. God says, that's polygamy. It's adultery and it's polygamy. You might not have a number of wives and husbands at the same time, but you're just going through, you're marching through them. No. How does, how, what is the biblical view? How does God see divorce and remarriage? Well, Matthew 19 tells us. And please, I'm not speaking here as one who's not experienced this. My mum and dad are both on their third marriages. So I'm aware of the intricacies, I'm aware of the complexities, I'm aware of the pain, I'm aware of all kinds of stuff. And, you know, but this is what Jesus said. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. It's tough. What does this make you do? What should this make you do? It should make you think very carefully about your future marriage partner. Because once you're in, as a believer, you're in. Is there condemnation on those who have, here in this room maybe, you may even be as a, as a divorcee? Of course not. Of course not. All of us 
are aware of things in our past. We've done, you think, God, how do I live with that? But by God's grace, each of us are learning by his spirit how to rebuild and get things right and just work through stuff and not live with loads of niggles under the surface, but work things through. God is a God who at his heart is redemptive, at his heart is restorative. He wants to rebuild, make good what went wrong. That's totally the heart of it here. But at the same time, I need to be speaking to those of you that have never been divorced, have never been married, and say, look, guys, let's build well so I don't have to then take you through that whole thing ten years later. I want to ask you to exercise wisdom in the choosing of your marriage partners. This is very, very important. Proverbs 31, it says this, Beauty is fleeting and charm is vain. Guys, beauty is fleeting. I think Davina is the most physically attractive woman on the planet. There will come a time where it will take me quite a lot of time to convince other people of that, say like in 40 years' time. They might say, that's cool for you, but she's no stumbling block for me. We're going to be wrinkly. We're going to be saggy. We're going to have struggle getting up out of seats. That's how it's going to be. So if it was just that, that I won my heart, then there's going to come a time where I'm going to start struggling. It's fleeting. But there's an inner beauty. There's a godliness. There's a, what really won my heart for Davina was when I looked in her eyes one day and I realised this girl will definitely love Jesus more than she loves me. I saw it. And I thought, yeah. She's got me. She's got me. And I, I want to say, guys, look for that. Look for that. Girls, charm is vain. A lot of guys talk a good talk. They've got the things, the stuff, the words on their lips, the little promises they might make, this, that, and the other. Look for substance. Don't, yeah, yeah, once we get married, you watch my prayer life. Forget it. Are you praying now? Are you seeking God now? Are you in the word now? Are you radical now? Are you, are you living out free from the love of money now? Are you pursuing Christ now? Girls, look for that in a guy. If that's not there, don't give them a second thought. Forget if they're funny. Forget it if they're handsome. Forget it if they've got all the, all the slick words. Okay, it's nonsense. They need to straighten out and get godly. So important. So, so important that we do this right and we plan well. Then we're going to build something great. Free from as many regrets as possible, amen? amen. I know it's sobering, but you know sometimes it's like that. I want to just quickly give you five reasons why although, and they're very quick, seriously, literally just reading it, because I know it's been long already, but five reasons why this stuff, which although it's taught in the Old Covenant, Malachi, is still relevant for the New Covenant. Number one, Jesus' Jesus and Paul's teaching is exactly correlates on the Old Testament teaching here. Because the Old Covenant is different from the New Covenant, yeah? But some, some things remain, some things don't. So we've got to be clear, is this one thing that remains? Second reason, Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all those that believe. So if you believe in Christ, in terms of you getting right with God, at that point, Christ is the end of the law. Okay? You haven't got to try and get right with God by, you know, oh, legalistic Christianity, I could preach for two hours on it because I hate it so much. It's an absolute life strangler. And I meet Christians and they're not enjoying following God and I think, why? It's because you're legalistic. You think God's constantly looking over you, looking to do this, that and the other and then I'll accept you. No, God accepts you. Why? Because you're in Christ. Amen. 
God accepts you because Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous and you're hidden in him and God receives you into his bosom. Regardless of your past, regardless of the state of your head, regardless of how messed up you are, how many addictions you've got, he wants you so he can fill you with his spirit and then teach you how to follow him. That's how it works. So Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. If any other pastor has taught you different, they are wrong, they are erroneous, they're going to get dung put on their faces unless they change their teaching. Okay? Feel that strong about it. However, what God does do is this. When you are regenerate in Christ, he puts his spirit in you and his spirit writes the law of God on your heart. So it's no longer on a tablet of stone, which you have to try, to try to obey even though inside you you don't want to. It's written on your heart, which means your very desires and affections change and you want to follow God's way. Third reason. God is unchanging. And so his moral standard is unchanging. Fourth reason. Christ died because of human sin. We have died with him. How can we continue in sin any longer? New covenant doesn't mean we're light on sin. No, it means you've died to it. (laughs) So you can walk free from it. Under law, you can't walk free from sin. If you're a legalist, you will sin secretly all the time and just hope no one sees you. That's the best legalism can do. If you're living in the power of the Spirit, you can walk free from the governing power of sin by grace. Hallelujah. Fifthly and finally, the new covenant doesn't redefine sin. It redefines a way of getting right with God, a perfect way. Once you've been made right with God and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you've been fitted out as a temple of his glorious presence, not as a temple that is to be desecrated. You are the temple now. It's no longer a building in Jerusalem. It's you. It's us, if you're believers. You are the temple, and you've been fitted out for glory. And there's a beautiful verse which I'm going to finish with in Ephesians 3, verse 17. It's a lovely, lovely verse. It says this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, but he's already talking to believers. Why is he praying this thing, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts? Surely Christ already dwells in their hearts. What is he saying? The Greek is this so that Christ may be at home in your heart. If you're a believer, he indwells you. But does he enjoy it? Does he enjoy the experience? Is he at home? Or are you constantly grieving his spirit, quenching his spirit, justifying your sin? The whole idea of this new covenant is that our heart gets changed so we can indwell us and we can have a good time together <laughs> and walk with one another and let him have his way in us. Amen? Amen. Sobering. Sobering, I know. I know. I mean, we could do Q&A, but I, I don't think I'm going to. But I'm really happy afterwards to answer any questions any of you might have. Just come up to me. I'm really happy. I might have missed stuff. might have got stuff. I might have been misunderstandings. I hope by God's grace I've communicated clearly what I've meant to communicate and that there's been no condemnation given out because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that you've caught, caught God's heart in it all. As we worship and praise, we're going to break the bread. And we're going to drink the wine because Jesus said, when you gather, do this to remember me. Let me just say, between now and the end of the service is breaking bread and drinking wine time. So when you go up there, please don't feel you have to rush. It's just, part, it's just it's communion time now between now and the end as we sing the songs. Take time to ponder his body broken, the seriousness of your sin, why you had to die. Let that sink in so you don't end up just 
fortifying yourself in sinful attitudes, but you say, Jesus, no, and repent of your sin. And, you know, and then the wine, which cle- the blood, the Bible says Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. So as you drink that, just take a moment as you drink that wine. Thank you for your cleansing, Lord. It's not the wine that cleanses, it's the blood that cleanses, but it speaks of the blood. It speaks of the body. So let's look to encounter him to take the bread and the wine. If you're not a believer, please don't come and take it because it won't do you any good. It's not a, like a magic charm. or it doesn't, It's through faith that we experience the Lord. If you are a believer, but maybe you're in a bad place with God in the sense that you've just been holding on to hidden sin and mucking around, let me just say, please get right with God before you take the bread and the wine. Don't, don't take the bread and wine in an unworthy manner. Just get right with God. Confess your sins. If you've got to get right with a brother or sister, maybe you've been resentful towards or whatever, just come and say, look, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And just get right with them. Um, no one's looking or listening, but let's, let's, let's do this well. Yeah? Yes. Let's do this well. We're the body of Christ. What a privilege. With it comes great joy and celebration. There's a great responsibility with it as well. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we want to work out how to love you better and better. Because you've loved us with a perfect love. You've loved us with a perfect love. And we thank you, Lord, that you loved us first. You loved us first. When we were enemies, kicking against you, you've poured out your love on us. And you've won us. And those of us that have known your mercy, your saving mercy, we say we've been won by you. We've been won by you. And Lord, we want to honour you, and not just in song, but in life and in thought. And just pray, Holy Spirit, help, help each of us with that. Each of us are aware of our indwelling sin. Each of us are aware of areas of thinking that are just not, not right. I thank you, Lord. We can work these things out in relationship with you. We haven't got to sort them out ourselves before you'll accept us. Thank you. We are in with you through Christ's offering. But Lord, as we focus on Jesus, I pray you would keep cleansing, keep refining, keep having your way with this place. Amen. Amen. The band are going to come and help us now.